Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this uh, very exciting, what I know will be a very exciting evening of discussion. Um, I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I'm director of the South Asia Center. And on behalf of the South Asia Center and the LSE events team, um, I just wanted to extend a very warm welcome to Ruchish Sharma, who has written an, uh, an honest, finely observed and affectionate portrait account of Indian elections and India as she comes through in this quite extraordinary book. I know there are copies for sale, so anyone who, who professes to have an interest in Indian politics, uh, please do buy it. It's, a, it's an extremely accessible read, uh, so buy the book, and I'm sure once you've heard Richard talk about it, um, you will definitely want to buy one. So I'm sure by now, with the extensive coverage that Richard has already had, you know most of what I'm going to say about his biography. But for those of you who don't, it's worth saying that Richard has a day job, which has nothing to do with this book, really. Uh, but something, uh, even uh, travels, have to be funded, no doubt. Uh, but he is a writer by his DNA, from the sounds of it. He's a contributing writer for the New York Times. Uh, but his day job is head of emerging markets and chief global strategist for Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Uh, he's the author of other books that we have had the pleasure of hosting at LSE, uh, the book launches for Breakout Nations in Pursuit of the Next Economic Miracles, published by Penguin in 2013, The Rise and Fall of Nations, uh, uh, Forces of Change in the Post-Crisis World, uh, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company in 2016, and uh, the latest book, Democracy on the Road, that we'll be uh, discussing today. Uh, Richard clearly uh, started writing very early at the age of 17 for India's main economic daily newspaper, uh, The Economic Times, uh, and in 2015, Bloomberg Markets named him as one of the 50 most influential people in the world. Um, I don't have to say this, but I think he'll be pleased if I say that he is also a dedicated sprinter who represented India at the 2011 World Masters Athletics Championships. Uh, one recent journalist, I think, decided he, he is prone to stunts, this young journalist who has just won the Journalist of the Year Award, but I saw a clip of him running uh, with rather less stamina than Richard while he did an interview about this book. But we shall do no such thing. We shall uh, sit here in this room and have a conversation, as conversations should be conducted. And the way we are going to um, uh, orchestrate this evening is to uh, invite Richard to speak for 15 to 20 minutes about the book. Um, I have a few questions, which I'll start with. Um, and then we'll take uh, questions and answers. We'll take questions from the audience for about 25 to 30 minutes. I'll try and keep that uh, as uh, long and open as possible to have a wide-ranging discussion. So uh, please join me in uh, welcoming Richard. Great to be back here um, after my two previous books. Uh, this is something which was absolutely different. It's more a memoir, I would say. Uh, and the reason why I chose to do this is, uh, really has to go back to how this entire journey started. Um, just a bit of a background that I grew up in India, 
And uh, those days in India, this is the 1970s and 1980s, when you were growing up, every summer you had no choice but to go to your grandparents' place for vacation. Uh, typically, you know, like now we can be asked uh, in terms of, uh, you know, where do you want to go for vacation, maybe to Europe, maybe to, uh, you know, someplace in Latin America or whatever. But those days, back in the 19... Uh, uh, late 1970s and 1980s when I was growing up, every time there was a summer vacation for a couple of months, basically the way it would be split is half the time in your mother's uh, parents' place and the other half in your father's parents' place. So my mother's pa uh, parents stayed in this place uh, called Bijnor, which is about 160 kilometers uh, east of Delhi. Uh, and it is in a part of India which is known as Mufusil India. And by Mufusil was a term, in fact, given by the British for that part of that country which was outside the main sort of uh, capitals. So it's essentially the entire hinterland in a way. So off we'd go every summer for vacation uh, to Bijnor. It was called vacation, but it was really sort of uh, a very curious ex experience. And then we'd go to Bijnor um, in the 1970s and 1980s, and it was quite a place because there was more time when there was no electricity than there was electricity uh, in this place. My grandfather, that's my mother's father, um, he was both a landlord, a, a, a large farmer rather, and also a criminal uh, lawyer. Uh, so it was always very sort of interesting to observe in terms of what the behavior at this home would be when we would go there. Because those days there was really no television uh, in terms of there would be one state channel which would start broadcasting in the evening uh, at, at like 6 o'clock and we'd all tune in and we'd see these boring images come up talking about you know, how to help the farmers and other stuff. And then it would be followed in the evening by state propaganda where the news bulletins would run and it would all be about how well the government is doing, etc. But such was the frustration that uh, my grandfather and his people would sit there watching the news bulletin there and every time there'd be more state propaganda on how well the government is doing, they'd all rise in unison and basically hurl abuses at the politicians and at the TV in terms of what uh, they were saying. And there was a sort of raw discrimination practiced those days, pretty much I'd say like in America, in, you know, like a century ago, where for, uh, the caste system was very clear. Our family happened to be Brahmins, which just happens to be at the top of the caste pyramid. So it was very uh, much of a privileged existence in a way. At, right at the bottom of the caste system, or virtually out of it, were the Dalits. And we'd have these strange scenes where the Dalits, their sort of occupation, the caste system is based on occupation in some way, where for, uh, you know, they were given all the menial jobs to do. So when, in our home, the... Uh, a uh, person would come to clean the toilets. Uh, after she would leave, water would be poured on the floors to cleanse the place uh, so that you would not step on the same area where the uh, sweepress had gone through. And by any chance, if you happened to touch her, you'd be sent off to have a bath 
because that was a form of untouchability which was practiced. And apart from that, whether it was the Dalits or even the Muslims, nobody was really allowed to come into the home. And if there were some well-to-do Muslim friends who were once in a while invited home, there was separate crockery usually kept for them so that they could end up eating uh, in that special crockery. So there was a lot of raw discrimination which was there uh, in that part of India in the 1970s and 1980s. And there was absolutely no way uh, that any sort of marriage, uh, inter-religion, or even inter-caste those days was considered acceptable. You know, today when I look at the lives of uh, a lot of the young people, including uh, young kids today, it is so structured in terms of this time is your tennis lesson, this time is your piano lesson, and the summer vacations are all broken down that way. Those days when, when we were growing up, there was basically no such, there was no such plan. Uh, practically like the entire day, there was nothing to do. And I sort of feel that that was a real benefit because when there's nothing to do, you end up absorbing so much more of what you are seeing. So as kids, we would see and observe these caste patterns, these, you know, this kind of religious discrimination. We were much more open to it. And also about the politics in terms of what was happening in terms of politics, because in India, as you know, politics is a great spectator sport and everyone sort of is very involved in it. So we'd watch what's happening as far as politics is concerned. And by the time that I was, uh, I'd say about 13 or 14, I was deeply interested in politics and the way that caste is shaping politics in these places. So I would go into the, to the village square with my grandfather's caretaker to go and find out as to which way people are voting. I'd be very sort of enthused to do that with nothing else better to do out there. And so from a young age, like, I had a lot of curiosity about politics and how you know, things are. Uh, and also about the social behavior of, of people. For example, at my home, um, I still remember this sort of stuff that um, my sister came with me and she was about 10 or 12 on one of those vacations and she, had, she was darkly tanned because she had spent a lot of time in the previous uh, year learning to swim. Uh, but because she was darkly tanned and such was the sort of... Uh, uh, association with fairness being something that you uh, you know was considered the the thing to be in India that she along with her aunts would be plastered with all this sort of white cream on their faces looking like ghosts moving around the home so that the, the skin would sort of become fair again so it's these kind of little things that you picked up as kids when you were watching what was going on when you'd go on these summer vacations that sort of shaped you know, like my thinking a bit, but also it sort of seeps deep into your conscious that this is how really Indians think in large parts in the hinterland, and this is, you know, what really goes on. So it cultivated a deep interest in politics, uh, sort of spending my time in Bijnor, going for these vacations out there, and spending, a, you know, like months there watching this kind of raw discrimination and caste politics play itself out. And it, somehow, and it somehow stayed with me for a long period of time. Then what really happened was that in, uh, it was 1996 that I began my day job as an investor. And 
My first memory of that really was that in 1996, India was having national elections. And the prime minister then was Narsimha Rao. He was hailed globally as the architect of economic reforms in India. And a lot of foreign investors were very pumped by what was happening in India. That Narsimha Rao has launched you know, these massive uh, economic reforms and he's transformed India. And so the entire thought process was that if he's done so much to transform India, surely he should get re-elected. And when elections took place that summer, he lost, uh, or the Congress party fared quite badly in those elections and was voted out of power. And that really shocked a lot of the foreign investor community, including many Indians who had sort of settled abroad and were following politics uh, and were also involved in the investing uh, world. So then when the next general election was held in 1998, in February of 1998, and I had begun my investing career, I made a proposition, because I was already very interested in politics shaped by my childhood, I made a proposition to uh, my boss uh, back then and told him that, hey, if you really want to find out what's happening in this election and clearly what happens in elections has an impact on policy, we need to go out on the road and look at how exactly people are thinking and how are they likely to vote. So he bit into that idea, and then I f formed a very quick group of five fellow writers and journalists uh, to go out to back to the state of Uttar Pradesh, uh, from where I would spend my summer vacations, to go out there and find out really what's going on and how are exactly are elections in India uh, going to take place and what exactly, as they say, is the bandobast out there for these elections. So off, so off we went, the five of us. And those days in India, we did not have any SUVs. The best so I could do then was that how do we all sit together? I hired these, uh, this one uh, six-door Volvo, which used to be used for weddings in India, and said, okay, let's use this six-door Volvo for all of us to sit together and go out there into the hinterland to see what's going on. So off we went. It was Valentine's Day, I still <coughs> remember, 1998. And we were fortunate enough that uh, about 150 kilometers out from Delhi, in the place of Muzaffar Nagar, we got to see Sonia Gandhi, who was making her maiden appearance uh, in Uttar Pradesh politics then, uh, in her first campaign rally in the state. So off we went to Muzaffar Nagar. Uh, and once again, to see her at the election rally revealed so much. I still remember that rally so vividly about how really India functions. First, that if you're outsiders, you're sort of see, uh, you know, uh, and you happen to be English speaking, you land up at these rallies and you get a lot of special VIP treatment. The plastic chairs come out for you. The Indian hospitality is all there. They bring you tea and biscuits and plastic bottled water. And, and there you sit, uh, whereas everybody else uh, essentially at these rallies stands. There are very few seats which are given. You have thousands of people who just stand otherwise in the, in the bleating sun watching these election rallies. And then you have a whole bunch of warm-up speakers giving one boring speech after another as the sort of uh, people, uh, as they wait for the main leader to land up. And they typically land up about two or three hours later than what the advertised time is in the hope that everyone comes to these rallies. 
So off then we came to the rally uh, in these, you know, uh, cars, you know, so to speak. I'm not sure the lights have gone off, but uh, like in terms of like how to speak there. And when, so, and in India, you have to remember the main highlight of these election rallies often is not even the leader, it's the helicopter. It's a, it's a sense of enormous curiosity out there. So half the crowd is waiting there, but the other half runs to the grounds the moment they see the helicopter land. And I've seen enough scenes that after the helicopter has landed and if the speech is boring, half the people start leaving because the helicopter landing is really the main event often at these, at these election rallies out there. It's a fascinating sight to see that. So the helicopter lands, she pops out, um, along with her daughter Priyanka and her son-in-law uh, Robert Vadra. So when she comes on stage, she walks very briskly, pretty much as they say, you know, that she's learning a lot, uh, that she's learned a lot from her mother-in-law Indira Gandhi. She briskly walks up to stage. She gives her election speech. It's very sort of broken uh, Hindi in which she speaks. Clearly, someone you know who is a foreigner, born outside, speaking out here. But the crowd doesn't seem to have much problem with that. They're quite happy just to see her. Uh, uh, uh. And then after that, Priyanka Gandhi comes on stage and waves. And the crowd goes also quite delirious. But then the son-in-law, Robert Vadra, comes and waves. And then I get to hear some pretty choicest abuses which are hurled at him out there as he comes in waves. And it sort of tells me at an early age that he just married Priyanka Gandhi. There was none of this current, you know, sort of environment where all sorts of allegations are made about what he's doing. But back then, it just told me that this family is still treated as a bit of a royal family. And if anybody else is seen as an interloper who doesn't quite look the part, he or she is not going to be accepted. And that was a clear impression after seeing that, election, uh, that uh, rally out there. We were fortunate enough that at the same ground the next day, we saw Atal Bihari Vajpayee, the BJP leader, come in campaign. And that also was very revelatory, that just before he came uh, to speak, the warm-up speakers were there, and they were all saying all sorts of vitriolic stuff about Sonia Gandhi's foreign origin, how basically she's, you know, you know be, uh, coming out here. I mean, and all sorts of sexist remarks, which I quote deeply in the book, about what was being said about uh, Sonia Gandhi out there. But then when Vajpayee came on stage, he stayed away from that kind of stock. And he's a masterful orator, great grasp of Hindi, gave a rousing speech in terms of what's going on. So uh, we saw both these rallies back to back one day after another. That was the first election trip that we did. And I have to say that it was so addictive in a way. In a way, for me, it was going back to the roots, which is you're going back to the hinterland. You're sort of, this is where you've grown up. You spent your summer vacations. And to understand India, once again, that, you know, like for us, it was clear that if you really want to do it, take these journeys, go out there, see what's happening in the, in the hinterland. So that was our first election trip. After that, the caravan slowly got bigger, which is that by, you know, by the next election trip we went, I had two wedding Volvos, basically, as we called them, you know, like as, as part of the caravan. And then the, the group, uh, and my criteria was that I will take whoever I think, you know, like is uh, a good friend of mine and is a writer. That's the criteria that we wanted to take. I mean, you, uh, that we'll keep it to a whole bunch of writers and good, you know, uh, uh, and people who are sort of, uh, people that I know well, because in a group like this, it takes one rotten apple to spoil the entire dynamic and fun. So by about 
2002, it was a fully formed group of 20 of us in, uh, in three wedding Volvos that we were going out. But the problem was that these cars, and this is India for you, would keep breaking down, uh, you know, because of the, uh, what they are. So I tried for a trip or two to carry one backup car and one more backup car with a mechanic in it, uh, but it sort of, you know, started breaking down uh, a lot, and then we had to go back to using these uh, more mundane Innovas, which became our sort of, you know, standard go-to cars uh, to sit after that. But the key was that this trip and this process sort of really took hold. And um, I was able to make it into a regular feature after that. So we have since done 27 election trips in India. Because in India, there is at least one major state election every year. And this is something I find very hard to explain to an international audience, particularly here in UK. Because in some ways, India follows the same sort of uh, parliamentary democracy as UK. Uh, But... In India, the difference is that the constitution is much more modern and federal in its nature, that a lot of the power is with the states. So I've always felt that India is really a continent of 29 uh, uh, states, which are very different from each other. And on many of these election trips, that's what we we have found, which is that in one state, the political dynamic is completely different from the other state. Basic stuff. You take Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, two of India's largest states. Two very prominent leaders there are Mulayam Singh Yadav in Uttar Pradesh and Lalu Prasad Yadav, one of the most entertaining politicians of India, who is, I mean, like, who's in Bihar. And we have met him, and you can see some, you know, really uh, fancy photographs of him forcing us to milk his cows and meet his... Uh, <laughs> And like meet his meet his uh, meet his entire stable uh, of horses and uh, buffaloes uh, out there, but same surname, they come from the same so-called caste group, but neither of them can win a much of a vote in each other's state. So Lalu remains a leader in Bihar, and Malayam Singh Yadav in uh, in um, Uttar Pradesh. Their sons are taking over as they age, uh, but they have no crossover appeal between one state and another. And then you have this very strange experience in India too, which is that we've been to the south of India on election trips, states like Tamil Nadu. And trust me, going to Tamil Nadu is about, you know, like as accessible for us as going to France and speaking to, uh, to people in the countryside. Because the, they have... The percentage of people in Tamil Nadu who speak Hindi is just 3%. And in fact, in all of India, as you know, less than half of Indians consider Hindi to be their first language. Uh, so it's a v- country with uh, an amazing amount of heterogeneity and diversity. And so on a first trip to Tamil Nadu, I still remember that we basically had to rely on one or two translators in our group to carry the entire trip for us, because many of us just couldn't communicate with the voters out there uh, in terms of what was, what was going on. And this is one of the biggest issues I feel also, and it's particularly true with the foreign media, but even with the Indian national media, that we want to simplify the Indian election as Modi versus who. That, you know, it's a referendum on Modi. The entire conversation seems to be about 
you know, uh, uh, about Modi because he is the prime minister. But we tend to forget that even in 2014, the, at the what was arguably a Modi wave running through the country, the vote share that the BJP got, his party, was 31%. So 69% of India voted for some other party in 2014. I think that's something which is not fully understood. And even now, when we uh, went back for a Tamil Nadu election trip in 2016, a common refrain when we talk to people would be, Modi who, Rahul Gandhi who? They have their own regional leaders. They don't quite care or vote for who the national leader out there is going to be. And it's those kind of experiences that you pick up only when you're on the road, even no matter how much is written about it. But what I find about India, which is remarkable as I travel, is the amazing warmth and hospitality that we get to see in this country. And that's what I've tried to make, you know, come out in this group, that it is just a country where the doors are flung open, people are warm as ever, toilets are opened up. As you know, like one of the biggest issues in India is how to find a good toilet when you're sort of going on long rides. So, in fact, I've had people in my group, uh, we have some women in our group, and arguably, I mean, understandably rather, they are much more particular about what kind of toilet that they want to use, who refuse to drink coffee or water in the morning on these trips, knowing that they are unlikely to get a toilet break anytime soon. And a rule which is imposed on us is equal opportunity loo breaks, which is that you can't have the guys only taking loo breaks. If it's done, it's all done together. But what's amazing, as I said, is that if and when we do find some toilet in some person's home even, how it's flung open for you and how things are served. And, the, and food there is, of course, a code of love in India, that wherever you go, you have to please the host in terms of eating what they serve you. So we have had some very awkward situations on these trips. I still remember in 2010, we went to Bihar uh, for another like election trip. And it was quite an evening we had because we first went to meet the amazing entertainer, Lalu Prasad Yadav. We went to his home and he was sort of his usual self-mocking self. He, could, he was pretending he couldn't remember the name of all his nine children. He was asking his wife to like remind him of the names were. But as hospitality was, he would serve us these very large samosas, uh, you know, like when we were out there. After we were done with that meeting, we went to meet the chief minister, Nitish Kumar, who's his bitter rival. Now, Nitish Kumar also wanted to feed us. So he had a whole plate of cutlets and other pakoras, etc., given to us. Now, we couldn't tell Nitish Kumar that we just eaten at Lalu Prasad's Yadav and we can't eat out here. So we had to somehow eat his food as well. And then there was a customary dinner which was organized by one of the big BJP leaders, which was organized for us. And so we, uh, Ravi Shankar Prasad, and we went to his home to have dinner then after that. So we have had an entire feast of samosas, then pakoras and cutlets, and then we go to have Litti Choka at this guy's place. So literally that same evening, we were forced to have three meals. And that was like a lesson, I'm not going to ever have three back-to-back meetings with politicians done again where you cannot tell them what you want to eat and not want to eat. We were pretty sick the next morning after these uh, three bouts of uh, meals out there. But that is what I come down to, that this is a remarkably hospitable country uh, it's, a, it's a country where I cannot do this kind of travel in other places, as I've, as I've written, that I cannot imagine doing an election trip like this in a Brazil or a South Africa, where I, I'd be scared to just walk out of my hotel room and have 
consequences if I were to do that. There's a lot of acceptability as far as that's concerned. So for me, that's what I got, like I've tried to do in this book, like to basically bring out as to why this is such a diverse country. The big theme of the book is that this is a, this is a story of many Indias. It's not a story of just one India. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's the most diverse and heterogeneous country I know. And that's also a reason why I think that the democratic impulses in this country are so strong. Why it's so difficult for just one leader or one strong man to dominate the entire country because the acceptability is limited in many parts of the country for a central leader. You need to be a regional or a state leader to really sort of you know, build uh, the influence out there. So that's how I also end, like, end my book, which is that at a time when there's so much talk of how we're in a democratic recession, where democracy is in retreat in many parts of the world, in India, I think it is truly thriving. And so, therefore, we are about to have an extremely competitive election in India. And that would have been unthinkable, uh, you know, like even a year ago when there was so much fear about loss of liberal values and loss of democratic uh, traditions in India. But the fact that we're about to have such a competitive election tells you how deeply rooted democracy is in India. But for me, the concluding remark really is the fact that it is... uh, a fascinating country to travel to, and if I can say so, that political tourism far beats any other form form of tourism in India. Uh, with that, I'd love to sort of uh, take some questions, and then I think we'll open it up to the audience. Thank you. So I hope uh, the audience. We, we have time. So I um, partly because I'm a complete election enthusiast and, and have many years of experience of not drinking coffee in the morning for the same uh, reason and, and um, uh, describe. But you describe these with great uh, liveliness, Richard. It's that, that's what makes the book uh, such an enjoyable read. There are lots of uh, fun anecdotes without you dwelling on them. So I think you know the fact that you sort of keep the pace moving without... Uh, also very skillfully not revealing too much about your companions, just revealing enough to make it interesting, but not too much to compromise um, them, because a number of them are, of course, quite well-known journalists uh, in India and writers. Um, My first question, therefore, is, do you want to share with us an anecdote that you would have liked to put in the book and didn't? Well, I mean, I I think that I've put, you know, like a lot... A lot of anecdotes in the book um, um, out there. I've really written this, as I said, uh, in terms of uh, in a very unedited way. I think you know, which is that I've just put all my thoughts there. I mean, like my you know, like one of my favorite anecdotes is there in the book, and it talks about you know a very interesting, colorful character who uh, was a very prominent Hindi journalist, and then he. Uh, joined full-time politics. And again, you know, it's these small, small stories which both make you laugh and also reveal the mindset of Indians. So this person basically, uh, who who was among my original five when we started this, uh, when we started these trips, then went on, like, to become a full-time politician. So obviously he stopped coming on our trips because we are all a bunch of writers. But on one of the trips, he he showed up. 
making a guest appearance, what I would, like in India, known, known as an item number, when you just come for a brief time, you know, like to basically uh, uh, be the star. And he decided to bring one of his understudies with him, who was also a very, you know, like a, a well-known young politician. And we were all having dinner at this hotel in Nashik, uh, in, Nashik in, in like Maharashtra. And then this young politician who he had brought decided for some reason to go for a walk with a somewhat older, you know, like a very smart looking uh, like journalist who's part of our, who's part of a group, very suave. And, you know, uh, they decided to go for a walk in the, in the garden, uh, post-prandial post walk, as we, as we would call it. But now look at the scene which plays out when this is going on. So this friend of mine in like who's a hindi speaking journalist now like a full time politician he is sort of very uh, nervous that what just happened you know that this young guy is going for a walk with an older woman in the gardens out there and so he basically tells us like all of us that hey we need to go and find out what's going on out here i'm like let them be no no we need to find out you know like this whole stuff so off we rise and we go for a hunt uh, in the entire gardens of this of this hotel to find out what two of them are doing. And, you know, like, it's the colorful language. He, you know, like, he's basically openly telling us, you know, for those of you who understand Hindi, I think many of you do, that he is basically he's telling us that I hope that, you know, this, this sort of, like, older woman will not end up squeezing this young guy in terms of how things are. And so we get there in the garden and we discover that the two of them are just having an innocuous talk with each other, but the, by then the imagination had run wild as to what may be going on out here. So, you know, this reveals many things to you. It reveals a way that it's a very conservative bias which runs, through, uh, which runs through, I think, most of India. It is a bias where I think that uh, the social acceptability for uh, many things is still not there in terms of uh, what's there, and also that it is a deeply sexist society still in terms of how things are viewed, you know, what is done uh, uh, there. So I think that for me, it's not about forming judgment. It's about the reality uh, out there as to how things function out there. Like we stayed at a hotel, I remember, again in like Uttar Pradesh around on that, uh, in like 2004. It was remarkable that like in the hotel there, they had a swimming pool. It was the only hotel that like this is in Kanpur to have a pool and most of the women there were sort of uh, entering the pool f fully clothed virtually because wearing a swimming sort of costume those days or even now in most places is still not considered the right thing to do out there. So I think that it's picking up these little little things as you travel you know about which reveal what the mindset is and you know, one of my favorite sort of jokes, you know, which I mentioned in the book out there is this, you know, not jokes, it sets, you know, like sort of semi-seriously, which is that in the 1960s, your mother would, you know, typically tell you that you've got to marry in the same caste. In the 1970s, she'd relent and say, okay, if you marry, you know, like you make sure that you sort of marry, you know, like in, you know, like in, the, in the same uh, religion at least. Then, you know, like I'm saying that, uh, you know, like uh, she would say that if you have to, ma but 
marry then subsequently at least make sure that you marry with the same sex in terms of how you know i mean uh, uh, you know, sorry i mean with a different sex i mean as far as things are concerned so that's how things change basically out there you know i mean as, i mean as far as india is concerned but i still feel in two thirds of india which is what i call the mofasil india much of the people out there are still sort of you know the values are still very traditional in terms of how things are and i think that we sort of don't appreciate that uh from a very urban e- existence and almost sort of think that it is politically incorrect to uh go down that path thank you um can i just ask you about two observations that you make throughout uh, at several points in the book um and that i think they're linked you you don't always link them but they are linked one is you say at several times that economic success of any incumbent government is not uh a guarantee for an electoral win right so the anti incumbency the fact that and you give several examples uh of uh chief ministers who achieved very high growth rates in their state economies who don't get voted back to power and the second set of observations are around uh, what a big mistake it was very early on in your travels to not get out enough to rural india right and calling rajasthan wrong that time simply because when you stay in even small but cities and towns of india you don't get because two thirds of india still lives is rural right and is agricultural in a large now this you don't make too much of it in the book but could you say a little bit about this global <coughs> image of india with very high growth rates which doesn't seem to be affecting the people who make your book so colorful and right. the people who were hospitable and people who spent so much time talking to you that their lives are not changing despite this so it's not inclusive growth right and no, that i think that you know one of the big themes in the book is this theme of of the broken state mm. which is that in india the capacity of the state to deliver is so bad and and the uh, and it um, the results like often are perverse that the people in general have a hostile relation i mean the daily interface with the government is very tough and very difficult like for example we went on a trip to madhya pradesh last year on like a, another election trip and it was like you know so india has a sort of farm policy where they offer something called a minimum support price which is that if you want to sell your uh, farm produce uh, to protect the farmer's income they the government sets a minimum support price and you can sell it at that price to the government agency so we asked the farmers about that and many of them tell us that they go to the government agency to try and get that minimum support price and they given the complete run around so they end up selling the entire thing in the open market and that really gets them much lower prices and depresses the price so the government's trying to sort of help them by having a minimum support price but when they go to sell the produce in the market they end up getting a much lower price than what they had expected uh, out there because the minimum support price offer is not available then we have this really sort of you know amazing anecdote where we go to this place called kolaras which is just uh, like in uh, the heart of madhya pradesh and the farmers are complaining to us that they're not getting their money from the bank that they're depositing the check in the bank it's a state owned bank but they're not getting the money from the bank we go inside the bank and we ask the people in the bank that in like the the officials that why 
you know, like the checks not being cleared, they sort of panic and call the police to chase us out of the, like of the bank. So basically, like the farmers can deposit the check and yet for two or three months or many months, the checks are not cleared by the bank. Uh, so for this tells you about how difficult it is for the average person to get even some of the basic rights that he or she thinks because the state is broken and the capacity to deliver is very limited. So I think that's the reason why there is generally like so much hostility towards the government and why the link with development is quite, is quite weak as far as India is concerned. Because I think that you know, when people feel that this is how the state is behaving, you might as well have your own person out there to get some protection. And by own, you mean by your own caste, your own religious lines, out there to get some protection. Because the state and, you know, will not really deliver or be impartial in its delivery, whether it's the police or it's got to do with the average bureaucrat out there. So I think that's the reason why the link between development and politics in India is so tenuous. I mean, the statistic that you referred to and something I think bears worth repeating is that there, um, we did this mini study. I mean, this is a book about anecdotes and travel, but still some of the like, studies I've included based on research that there have been uh, 27 instances in India when a state economy has grown at a pace of more than 8% over a five-year time horizon on average. That's a really high growth rate. Of those 27 instances, half the time, the chief minister of the state lost their re-election bid. That's a staggering statistic for me uh, out there. And that once again reveals the fact that development is at best one of the many factors you need to win an election in India, but so many other things you need to go right for you to appease the average voter, but he's a swing voter who has a very hostile interface, I think, or a very tough interface with the state. And that high growth rate doesn't necessarily people's, mean people's everyday lives are getting any better. That's right, right. yeah. The other uh, critical thing that you've mentioned, but again not talked about, so I'm taking the opportunity to draw you out on that, is the cost of entry into politics, which seems to be the biggest, and like you, I'm a great enthusiast of, of Indian elections as scale, the scale of our participation, uh, you know, that people feel so invested and enthusiastic about voting in India. But people wanting to s- participate in politics as politicians, it's become now prohibitive, right? So the costs of entry into uh, the money game around elections which you saw a lot of, you write less about the money, I think, than... than no, I think I'll, I'll make two points here. I think that the problem in India also has to do with just recognition, not just the money, which is that, you know, there have been so many instances when outsiders have come into a constituency and for them to win an election in India, despite enormous amount of money that they have spent, can be very difficult. Uh, you, you know, like a classic case, I think, which many of you know about, was my friend Nandan Nilkani, who basically tried to stand from South Bangalore, you know, like an amazing sort of individual. But I think there were surveys which showed that, uh, that you know, like, despite the fact that he was trying to stand, so many people in, in, in South Bangalore, which you think is a relatively posh constituency, didn't even have the name recall. Uh, same thing with Manmohan Singh in South Delhi. So I think that the problem is this, that some constituencies in India 
the size is so big. We're talking about yeah. a constituency, you know, like of three to four million people, literally. It's 20 times the size of a UK parliamentary constituency. Constituency yeah. that it that you know that unless you are sort of deep into that constituency, you've built your roots, or you know lots of people out there, or you have family connections. I think that's the reason why possibly family connections matter so much in India. Unless you have that, it's very difficult for you to really break through. Uh, so I don't. So I, in fact, so the observation I make in the book is that the that 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 money may, uh, is again one of the many factors. But money is not the determinant factor for winning elections in India. Because if money was such an important factor, then the incumbent should always be winning. The incumbent in India typically always has more money. The incumbent government, at least, because of the fact that they're able to get more corporate funding their contacts, they're able to sort of uh, milk those contacts. So I think that that is the issue that uh, it is very important in India to like to keep this in perspective that the size of the constituencies is such, the interest groups are so entrenched that for an outsider to come is very prohibitive for that reason. I'd say money is maybe one, but not, I would not say it's the main reason, which is the barrier to entry. I mean, the way I see it, and, and your anecdotes support this, that individuals wanting to stand for elections partly because of the scale of the constituency, just the minimum budget required to get yourself seen and heard across a parliamentary constituency. The costs are so prohibitive, and often you're up against candidates who have more money, that it's simply undoable for most people to run for elections themselves. But the good news is that, as we've often seen, the the richest parties don't win elections. And your Bihar example that you give of uh, Nitesh and Lalu together... Yeah, you know, they were like outspent... You know, like, and once again, in India, you can make out by like how much you're outspent by how many helicopters you use, right? As I said, that's a symbol. So as I, in that election, as I point out, that the BJP had like 23, 24 choppers at their service. The, these two guys put together had three or four. And yet they were able to win the election because their combination of the caste groups in particular was much more powerful than the combination that the BJP was able to put together. So... Uh, Again, a demonstration that money is maybe one, but not the determining factor of elections in India. Yeah, great. Okay, let's let's take some questions because I know there there are lots. And is that okay? Let me open it absolutely. up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this gentleman in the third row. Yeah. Wait. Thank you. Uh, thank you for lecture, sir. Uh, I'm a Chinese uh, undergraduate student. So uh, my question is, uh, the Western media has made plenty of positive comments about Indian democracy rather than Chinese political system. But in the last few decades, Indian democracy has indisputably made some improvements for its people. However, with all my respects, compared with a marvelous achievement which the so-called Chinese autocracy government made uh, Indian the, the development in India seems a little bit insignificant so and from my perspective even the the name Chinese autocracy or Chinese uh, dictatorship which was defined by Westerner is full of political uh, ar- political arrogance and political biases so my, my question is that if Indian democracy is truly at, as advanced as Western media said, paradox, uh, paradoxically, 
<laughs> why Chinese leadership only used 40 years times to complete the industrialization and become more, far more technologically sophisticated Thank than you. India. Yeah, okay, all right. So, Thank listen, you. I think that, you know, like the numbers speak for themselves. There's no debate that China has done much better than India is concerned economically. But whether you can use that to form a value judgment about democracy versus whatever you, like you want to call authoritarian rule, I don't know because of this reason. I think that China has done better just because for whatever it's, maybe it's luck, like ended up having much better leadership in terms of, as, uh, in terms of what it did. But for every, you know, so I, I did this study, in fact, from my previous book, The Rise and Fall of Nations, that are authoritarian governments better for development or democratic governments. And here's the conclusion I found, that the, uh, that the outcome in growth rate terms tends to be equal. That for every Chinese success story, uh, there are enough authoritarian governments in the world, whether it's in Africa or in Latin America, which have ruined their countries too. So it's very hard to, to, to only use one example of China and to say that model is better compared to the Indian democratic system, simply because, as I said, there are many countries in the world which have authoritarian governments as well, or whatever you want to call them, uh, with no democracy rather, where things have gone horribly wrong as well. So what the same study found was that the difference between de democratic governments and authoritarian governments in terms of the outcome is that the outcome tends to be much more volatile in these two scenarios. So that the authoritarian governments tend to be either very good in terms of economic outcomes because the leadership is very good or very bad. Democratic, the outcome tends to be more stable. So for every Chinese success story, there are enough authoritarian governments in the world which have also ruined their countries. So that is what I'd say, that just using one example against each other may not be the true picture of the two systems. Yeah, and democracy is not an economic policy. Yeah, and, uh, and I think, that, you know, like, the difference between India and China, like I've always said, is that, the, that apart from their population, they have nothing in common apart from the, the large populations. China is a much more homogeneous country. Uh, India is a very heterogeneous country. You try and rule India with a firm hand, like possibly Indira Gandhi tried to do for a while, and the consequences tend to be much worse as compared to when you have a much more sort of, you know, spread out, devolved kind of uh, system. I'm going to take two questions at a time, if yeah, that's sure. okay. So the lady at the back. Hello, sir. Uh, like we all know that often young parliamentarians in India come from a tradition of dynastic politics, like you just mentioned. How do we incentivize young professionals who mostly tend to join the bureaucracy for a multitude of reasons to join politics? Okay. Thanks, and I'll take one more, if that's okay. okay. Yeah. Thank I'll you very going. much for introducing India and at the same time, the democracy in India. And I also thank you the um, reply you have given to the comparison between the China and India. One is, the, as he said, the dictatorial country, autocratic country, and another is the democracy country. So these are two thanks for one lecture and another for the reply. 
But my question is, and I am actually puzzled with your lecture first words on your growth with the caste system. You have seen the caste system. And another is the toilet, which has been the film the propaganda is going on how to make the toilet good, paid toilet, the film called So these are the basic uh, index of Indian democracy. But my question is actually that democracy means, which we have learned in our political science subject, democracy minimum requirement is the human rights and equality. So far the equality is concerned. So what's your question? This is the question actually. If you can just get to it, there are lots of people waiting, yeah. The question is, do you think there is, but let me explain actually otherwise how will the equality, so far the equality is concerned, there is neither equality between man to man because of the caste system. And another is between man and woman, the rape number is so high among the women that you cannot say that is equality between man and man. So equality has gone. And as regards the equality between the states is concerned, can you explain the equality between the Orissa development and the Uttar Pradesh development? Okay, okay thank sure. you. And third, uh, that's fine. Third is human rights. Can you explain the human rights? What is happening at the moment, you can see in the television what is going on in Kashmir. Is it human rights? 700,000 security forces are placed in a country when the population is less than that. Right. So, you know, I mean, to answer your question first, which is the fact that, you know, how do we incent... So, you know, one thing I've always believed in, and I sort of write that like uh, in the conclusion of my book, is that, like in that line, that politics is the downstream of culture. So, uh, so if you see here, like in India too, that if you look at the top 100 companies in India, two-thirds are family-owned. If you look at the top 100 billionaires in India... Uh, Two-thirds belong to 1% of the caste in India, many of them being banias, as you know, out there. So my entire point is that we like to think politics is different. And my point is that politics is reflecting the deep cultural biases in India, whether it's to do with families, dynasties, or the caste system. Uh, And it's got to do, whether it's got to do with business or it's got to do with... Uh, even things like the film industry. So I'd say that it's a deeper cultural change that we ought to seek in India. And what's happening in politics is a reflection just of the culture and the society as far as India is concerned. Uh, How to incentivize, as I said, that the only way, I mean, you know, that it's the same thing, which is that, that that I think that as India gets more urban, I think some of these biases will begin to fade. The problem in India has been that the pace of urbanization has been far too slow. Uh, and so therefore, these biases continue to run very deep as far as India is concerned today. Um, regarding your question, I mean, like in terms of the fact, I mean, like I'm not sure how to answer that, but I'd say that very briefly that, yes, there are many fault lines as far as India is concerned, whether it's got to do with inequality or human rights and stuff like that. But I, you know, like don't think that it is any fault line which is sort of 
so unique to India that it's going to undo the country or something like that. As far as India is concerned, what is remarkable for me is the underlying resilience of this country. Uh, that despite all its troubles, all the daily sort of issues that people go through, how accepted, how acceptable people are of what really happens out there. Like, uh, as I said, that in other countries, you would uh, end up getting much more, let's say, class warfare. We have traveled in India for the last 20, 25 years. And I don't think that we really felt unsafe as such because of any class warfare as we would do in a Brazil, South Africa, or other places. So it's the acceptability of, of India that I find to be truly remarkable and also like the resilience of it. Uh, but I agree that, that, yes, there are many fault lines in India which exist. Uh, but the best also form of leadership in India, I feel, is, is, is found at the state level. So you speak about the different levels of development but yeah, but in India, that's what happened. That states like Odisha or other states, which used to be very backward, have developed more effectively in the last 10 to 15 years as the leadership quality has improved in those states. Okay. So we, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your talk. Um, your previous two books are actually the reason why I'm pursuing a degree in economics right now. Um, so this question pertains more to the investing side. Uh, given how much politicians exaggerate in elections and how much... They, how much hyperbole they use. Um, how does understanding the state elections and under, understanding the dynamics like really translate into like the investing side and like what you guys uh, allocate capital into? No, I, as I've said that, I think that the Indian story is a story of 29 states. It's not a national story, so to speak. And the way that things are changing is this, that today the number of state leaders who directly come to pitch for investment has gone up significantly. So like in New York, you'll have so many more of these state leaders who show up out there pitching for investment. So I think that's really how India is going to keep on evolving, which is that state by state. Uh, and state leaders can make a big difference. Bihar, even arguably Gujarat before that, that under strong state leadership, you can end up getting you know, very different results. On the other hand, the states where the governance has been poor can also regress, like a classic case I mentioned in my book is Tamil Nadu. This used to be at the forefront of India's development process for many decades. But in the last few years, because of problems of too much alcoholism, uh, you know, like it's led to the state's growth rate also doing very poorly. So I think that assessing each state in India has become very important. In fact, I've written this book in India as a passion project uh, because of all our travels. But if I were to ever write a book on India again, and since you've read my first book, I can make a reference to it, it would be something to the effect of the breakout states of India, mm -hmm. which, are that, which are the states in India which, have a, which are breaking out or which are breaking down. So, it's, so I think to understand India as an investment destination too, understanding these different state storylines is very important. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I also read your first book and wanted to ask a similar question. Um, I particularly appreciated in that book the way you talked about the feel of a country um, in terms of making the investment. And I think you talked about Brazil and how it felt expensive um, when you were there. And so you felt that it was kind of heading for a fall. Um, and I was wondering, with that in mind, how you feel about India right now. Does it feel cheap or expensive? And perhaps you can extend that to different states as well if, if you feel like it. Uh, yeah, no, I think that as far as India is concerned today, you know, like, uh, I think that 
it feels okay i don't feel that it feels too cheap or expensive it's not on the when in the scale the issue in the world today and i'm digressing here a bit but you since you're asking this question is that the dollar in general feels very expensive against everything else uh so you know one thing that you know like we do is to maintain these rough indices that you know like which is the country in the world where it's the most expensive to have a burger and a latte and now switzerland and the us are the top of the spectrum and many developing economies feel very cheap so the, so it's very different from 2012 when you had many developing economies like brazil and all which felt very expensive or even russia i think that all that's changed and india is somewhere in the middle of that pack uh, as far as on the cheap expensive but the big story today is the dollar is the super expensive and the super strong currency in the world today um i can't see any women oh the, this one here please just make sure we get the balance right yeah. thank you for the wonderful talk and uh, india is gearing up for another election and the country seems to be divided into two distinct groups one who staunchly support modi and the other who do not know who to support so my uh, question to you is as an informed uh, citizen who do you think is a good alternative to modi you know but this is what i've uh, i've tried to say in my talk today which is that this election is not how we are looking at it to be which is modi versus who as i said that even in 2014 modi and the bjp got 31% of the vote 69 went to uh, you know percent went to others and in this election too that yes we know very well who the candidate from the bjp is going to be on the other side in india because of its deep parliamentary democracy and the variations that you get on state by state predicting an election is hard enough but predicting who will be the next prime minister is even harder like you, you know for example narsimha rao in 91 dev goda gujral in 96 97 and then manmohan singh in 2004 none of these people we could have predicted before the election uh so i think that the entire outcome it's quite likely that even if by any chance the other uh, that the bjp doesn't make it and the uh, and the opposition does make it and you get a coalition it's quite likely that the leader they choose will be somebody who is not too threatening to anybody and so we will not be able to know that name today uh so that's just india for you it's a deeply parliamentary democracy i mean it's a deep parliamentary democracy and it's not a prime it's not a presidential election even though we want to think of it that way often that modi versus who uh because there are many states in india where they don't think that way uh in terms of who to do that's a very national media narrative and even more so with international media so uh, that's my point that most voters in india i don't think think that way uh, uh your personal opinion if i were to ask you about your personal opinion who is the right according to you the opinion i mean i as i said that there's no point in me i have a personal opinion because i don't believe in a in the fact that this is the presidential system i you know like i think that this is a true parliamentary system and my also feeling is that no matter who comes to power the india story goes on the you know in terms of that's how this country you know like is built i mean people forget that even in 96 97 in the midst of that entire what is remembered as a chaotic period for indian democracy the so called dream budget was presented back then in 97 by you know uh, by a coalition government so i think that this relationship between you know like who who i would want you know i mean uh, because 
Like even if I were to, were to put my hat on as an investor, I think it just doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, this gentleman there. Sorry. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, so a central theme seems to be that um, India is really a, a, co a collection of 29 states. Um, and you, you mentioned that somewhere along the way that that means that a strongman leader can't really um, rule India. It won't be possible. I was just wondering, um, what evidence are you seeing of strongman rulers, strongman tendency on the, the state level? Right. No, at, a st at a state level, I think there are many people who I describe as supremos. Basically, that at, at a state level, you do end up getting pretty strong leaders. So I think at a, at a state level, you can still govern you know, with, an, you know, with a bit of an iron hand. But to do that nationally, given the diversity and the heterogeneity, is very difficult. So I think that's also one of the issues I, I touch upon in the book as to why Modi may have found it much more difficult to make the transition from being chief minister of Gujarat to becoming the prime minister of the country, because what you can achieve as a chief minister, particularly of a state where the bureaucracy is relatively better functioning compared to uh, like other states, is very different as to what you can achieve at a national level. So I think the model has to change, and that may have been something which maybe Modi hasn't been able to make that full transition, uh, thinking that what he can achieve at a Gujarat level, he can achieve at a national level, it's very difficult to do. Question. Uh, good evening. Thank you for this fascinating talk. Uh, so my question is again about autocracy versus democracy. So I read uh, in Breakout Nations how you compared how on average the growth, growth rates are equal between autocracies and democracies. But it's very hard to think of a country that pulled itself out of poverty under democratic rule. I guess US would be one example, but you look at the whole of Europe, they achieved industrialization under dictatorial rule. You look at Japan, you look at Singapore, you look at China. None of them have achieved any kind of major big bang economic reforms under democratic rule. So do you think India got democracy too early? And if I'd be permitted to ask one more question. When you look at the major economic reforms that India needs, land law reform, labor reform, or deregulation, uh, privatization of banks, I don't see a party in India that supports any of them. Do yeah. you? And if you don't, then is there a point of voting at all? <laughs> no, I think uh, that's great. So, see... Um, one is in terms of what the reality is, and one is in terms of what your hope is. So as far as India is concerned, given the heterogeneity of that country and the diversity, to have strong central rule in India has only proven to be counterproductive. As I said, you take the case of Indira Gandhi as well, right? When she tried to impose emergency in terms of what happened, uh, you know, uh, that in India it's just impractical, even if you think that authoritarian rule may have been better for that country. Given the heterogeneity of that country, it is impractical for India to achieve that. I mean, for India to implement that uh, in terms of what, you know, uh, what, uh, that kind of rule. Because if anything, it sows the seed for secessionist movements in India, the moment you have too much centralization uh, out there. Now, in terms of the fact that what are the reforms which are required, and you're quite right that there are many reforms that are mentioned. 
but here also i feel that this that the ref, the best reforms in india have to be carried by state level leaders in terms of what they end up doing rather than for the central government to do much out there the central government it's very difficult for the central government to implement reforms in india uh, without sort of disturbing the social fabric of that country so the the question of whether india got political so like a theme i i touch upon on the book is that i think that the dissonance i found in india and this is the pitch i tried to make to leaders in my idealist younger days and, until i sort of gave up on it is the fact that india got political freedom but not enough economic freedom i think that is the thing which i find the big disconnect that you got the political freedom but you didn't get enough economic freedom that the state that the state in india is deeply oppressive and still deeply affecting people's lives out there uh you know like there's a very classic small thing about the lack of economic freedom in india which is that no business person in india will speak their mind in public about what to do uh and i have asked people even now that you know when they come in sort of like it's a very common scene in india that all these business people will go on cameras the moment they're on you know especially at the annual budget which is presented in india and they'll you know give no matter what the budget is like they'll give them rankings at 9 out of 10 finance minister well done i've even had instances when one person came on tv and said 11 out of 10 you know basically like to please the finance minister the cameras go off and the guys are bitching about the, like i mean every policy which has been announced and stuff like that so i asked them that you know that, that even recently that like when they bitched to me that why don't you go say this to the government even in private and their sort of th- response in hindi is marna hai kya basically like, do we want to die out here by giving our frank re- response so to me that is the fundamental problem in india which is that we don't have enough economic if these business people truly did not fear the government because they know that the government can at any point in time pull any lever to basically come after them whether it's tax enforcement directorate some law some thing in india you know there is like to basically c- comply with 10 laws in india you have to break 9 i mean like in a way to sort of you know get things done so th- like they know that something you know can be done which is wrong so that for me is the issue in india that th- we just don't have enough economic freedom as yet even though we have a lot of political freedom so that for me is the disconnect but to do anything more on the political side to make it more centralized or to or, or to do that i think would just tear the social fabric of that country okay here in the front row hello thank you so much for what's been such a heartening talk um the question that i wanted to ask you was you've spoken about how people would vote based on caste and religion to seek protection because it's a broken state out there but to what extent have you observed that people vote based on hatred um like just because you know their passions have been ignited and like right now you see this happening with the whole pakistan situation um so what how how big a factor does that play and what do people have to do in order for development to be a major criteria in elections because you have politicians coming and talking simple talk because they don't understand, like they don't talk about big issues like education and the environment for example so what can and one more question if i may be permitted to ask what does a student have to do to join your caravan of <laughs> writers on the road <laughs> Okay so i think that in terms of the fact is that uh, you know like you asked about uh, what exactly you know like uh, i mean my entire sort of point is that 
that the state in India is what's like really broken, right? So that's really what the fundamental thing, I mean, as you, as you say out there. So I forget the, I mean, the original thread of the question. Your, hatred. I mean, the hatred. But so my point is that I, that I don't see the hatred to be that, that evident out there because most elections in India, the swing vote is about 3-4%, you know, like in terms of it. I don't think that hatred runs so deep in India that elections are being won and fought on the, on the basis of on the basis of that. As I said that, like, uh, my last chapter is that, that it is so hard in India to even have a nationalist movement beyond a point because the sub-national identities are so powerful. Most people first think of themselves as Gujaratis, Marathis, Bengalis before they think of themselves even as, as Indians. So I think that, you know, there, that diversity is also a safety wall for India. That's very hard to get the whole country mobilized uh, about about something, uh, as far as you know, things are concerned. Like as I said, there are many parts of South India where the form of Hindutva or or like Hinduism is very different from what's followed in the north. So I'm not a great believer that the whole country is going to basically, you know, just get jingoistic and just rally behind one thing. That's not been the history of elections in India uh, in terms of you know what's like happened. That's ends up being very vocal at one level, but I don't think that's that's what I've seen in elections, like as far as India is concerned. And then the last question, yeah, sorry. Could you join your caravan? I was uh, going yeah. to say on your That was an easy one, but yeah. The hatred question, I mean, it's interesting when Cargill, when the elections happened after Cargill, actually academic surveys asking people around the country about Cargill, it wasn't even an issue. Most people even hadn't even heard about it. That was one. And it, it is interesting that 2014... Uh, Narendra Modi's campaign was not based on a Hindutva uh, platform at all. It was on a development. Yeah, much more. I mean, as a quote in the book, basically, like a statistic yeah. saying that the word, that at yes, that point in time, he like he used development as a word 500 times more than he used Hindutva. Uh, you know, like or anything like to do with that. So, I think that in India, you know, like there's enough of a safety wall. I feel at least, and I hope that hope you know that's not this you know sort of shattered that uh, don't jinx that it, belief. But yeah. yeah. The fact that it is not something which I feel that people, people are, you know, like vote, uh, with, you know, with that kind of thing in mind. And the simple answer to the... Yeah, the simple answer is this. Listen, this is a group of my friends, right, in terms of, you know, like in terms of you know, who's been formed. The, so the criteria is, I guess, writers. And I guess over the years, we, we, I mean, if you have friends, yeah, I mean, but... <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, like uh, Richard you know, is in London this week. <laughs> <laughs> but my entire issue is, as I said, that it's about it's about sort of you know it's like become a family for me, right? In terms of this, like you know what you do, the shared experiences and stuff. And I grew up as a writer in India, so most of these people are people that I got to know as writers. And you'll get to know much much more of them in color when you sort of read the book. But these are people that I got to know as writers growing up in India in the 1990s. Sure. Okay, I think we are going to now run out of time. So I'm going to go back to taking two questions uh, together. So there's one there and then the gentleman in front. I come from the Mofasil India, which you described. Uh, Can we know uh, uh, there is some progress or growth or or something positive from your first trip to your recent trip? So that... Yeah. Thanks. Sure. So, you know, like... Let me take... Sorry. There's a second question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Otherwise, we'll run out of time. Keep your questions as short as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
I was just wondering, have you ever thought about this development, the global Indians, the people that, who live in the West? So there was the influence, according to the BBC, the people who have spent time after their work, they keep calling them back home, the people creating a consensus like, a, like a advertising for the political party. So, and then along with that, this, this forced the digital development, like current U.S. government, like kind of like saying that Modi is doing good, I approve Modi. So this sort of development, how it affects the political system like back home or how, it, how it's going on, have you ever thought about it? Right. So, I mean, so the first question basically in terms of, you know, what uh, has changed in Mofasil, India, you know, like to write this book, I went back to Bijnor last year to write the closing chapter of the book. And the line I have there is that changes upon changes, so many things in India still remain the same. So there's one sort of amazing stat out there, which, you know, like observation that I'll tell you about. 30 years ago, when I would go back to Bijnor from, from Delhi, that 160-kilometer ride would take four hours. I went back last year, and, uh, you know, like, and it took the same distance, took four hours again. Nothing had changed in 30 years at one level. But many things had changed at another level. 30 years ago, it took four hours to 260 kilometers because there was one road and one pontoon bridge which took you over the Ganges to Bijnor. Now when you go, there are six-lane highways, at least for part of the route, and there are steel bridges. Problem is that the amount of development and the traffic which has built up has been so incredible that the time taken hasn't changed. So now you can j- take your judgment as to how much has changed, not changed. One level, nothing has changed. 160 kilometers, four hours. I do these election trips. And there's a basic rule that I've followed for 20 years, which is that no matter where you're going, maybe apart from very few pockets in somewhere in the south or some other places where you go, like hit a very long expressway, that average time of travel in India over 20 years is basically 40, 50 kilometers an hour. Average. Some pockets you'll hit which are less, some pockets which you'll hit which are much more. Sorry. Uh, sorry, okay. Let's, you disagree. Okay. So. I'm both from there. I'm Major Arun Chauhan from yeah. the Indian Army. I'm doing international yeah. things. Uh, and uh, things have changed. I think uh, if you uh, travel on Lucknow Highway, I, I travel on that uh, same Yes. Road, yes. Can we, can we make space for other people? You yeah, can sure. Have a chat I mean, like, very briefly. I mean, as I've said, that changes the point. You know that lots has changed in India for the better. I mean, I mean, in terms of the amount of women like go to school, the amount of people like who do that, lots has changed in India. So I'm not saying things haven't changed. All I'm trying to say is that many things have remained the same, and yet beneath that surface, things have changed as far as India is concerned. As, as far as the develop, it's a transformed country. If you at like many levels, and yet you look at the town squares, they will still look the same that they used to look 20 years ago in terms of the same chaos, the same. So what's changed is that the motor transports change. On a town square, you'll get to see many more two-wheelers and, and other things sort of, you know, whizzing past. Like 20 years ago, it would be bicycles. But I'm saying that at, at some level, there's change. At some level, there's not change. That's what I'm trying to sort of bring out the reality of India for you. I think this comes through. Yeah. Uh, and this gentleman's question, do uh, Indians abroad affect the... You know, like, very little, I'd say. I mean, it's a very marginal effect because, as I said, it is so difficult for even an Indian to go there and, and change things dramatically, for, you know, when you enter stuff. So I'd say that, yeah, global Indians, 
Great, it sounds like a great tag to have in terms of it. But the change, I, I still feel, yeah, it's like very marginal. I don't feel that it's, it's something which, the, that the political discourse has been shaped at all by uh, global Indians. Uh, okay, so let's take two questions at the back up there. And can you keep them really brief, please? Right at the back, top. Those two sitting behind each other. Yeah, please, stop. Yeah, thanks. Understanding different regional and policy environments in India, uh, it's really necessary that, you know, there's a sense of cooperative federalism among the states. So, so what, according to you, can be a key lever to, you know, induce cooperative federalism, that is performance-based competition among the states? Can it be decentralization, where states emerge more powerful, they emerge as better players? Or centralization, where the center emerges powerful and decides the rule of the game. Right. Okay. okay. Let's take the question in front of him. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering, how has social media changed politics? And in the future, would we, would we be able to, to see someone like um, Alexandria Osaka-Cortez? So I can never pronounce yes. her name properly. AOC, as we call them simply. Yeah, yeah. Is that something we could possibly see in the future with uh, you know, social media bringing down the kind of cost and recognition because people can be more accessible in politics? In general you're talking about, yeah, not just India here, yeah. So the first question I think, I firmly believe it has to come from more decentralization, more devolution of power because in like centralization in terms of, so it's like, it's already happening as I said that you have many more state delegations which are showing up in New York or London even maybe or Davos for sure making pitches out there. So I'd say that a lot of it has to come from more devolution of power, more centralization. Maybe that's the one upside of having coalitions, basically, that the more coalitions you have with more regional leaders in there, the more they're forced to devolve power and have the states become more assertive. So I think that's simple. Your answer, yeah, I think that what's happening in the world today is the fact that in many Western countries, it's possible that the experience with socialism is now being forgotten. And so, therefore, now you're beginning to see people among the young millennials or the other people who don't quite remember what it was like to have socialism, who are now sort of beginning to sort of pine for that, given the failures that they think have taken place in the system over the last 10 years. I think that, so, yes, I think that the demographic shift seems to me that in the next 20 years or so, there's going to be more of that rather than less of that across the world. Because, you know, we... That's how the pendulum seems to swing with globalization to deglobalization, de from the complete celebration of capitalism to now sort of going the other way with the young people sort of pining more for what they think uh, exists in like an ideal way because they, they haven't lived through the alternative. Sorry, just to clarify, there's many more like um, accessibility as in like a newcomer kind of taking over it could be, but I think the social media, for me, I feel something very strongly about it, that there's the opposite also going on. That today, for example, one of the other things that I've spoken about in the past is the approval ratings of leaders across the world today is close to an all-time low. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that destroying people on social media has become a lot easier, including of politicians. So, the short, so, that, so, so what social media, I think, is helping to do is to shorten the time span that, of leaders and their popularity. As a uh, global strategist, how much in your daily work does 
political risk factor into your investment decisions. Okay, yeah. add the gentleman along there. Um, <clears throat> I was struck by a, an answer that you gave to a question earlier where you seem to imply that you know, whatever the color of the government, it doesn't matter, the India story will, will continue. Uh, I was struck because there is a perception that uh, you know, institutions have been eroded in India in, 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 in recent years. Um, I mean, as a former journalist, I was wondering what you thought about that. Um, and, these, and as a financial markets person, I was wondering what, what you thought about, um, say, demonetization and the fact that over the last two years we've had two central bank governors that have resigned. Sure. Okay, can, right. can I take another question? I'm sorry. Yeah, so, okay. There so are I, people waiting, so, so let's take this. this. I'm, I'm writing them. You're right now. I'm okay, right, great. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Hi. Hello. Just wanted to ask, because... You're talking about India is unique and different to China as well. But one, the impact of illiteracy rate on, econo- on political outcomes, on how campaigns are run in different states and what the outcome of the election is, given that, for example, in Bihar, 40% of population is illiterate. We saw two years ago the huge fight in Uttar Pradesh over the bicycle symbol because without that symbol you wouldn't stand a chance in the elections, depending on uh, you know, which of you were in that case, or how does it compare, for example, to Tamil Nadu, where the literacy rate is much higher than in those two okay. northern states? Thanks. Great. Okay. Okay. So if, in terms of political risk, that yes, I think that we are beginning to, you know, sort of, so the way that I look at political risk is that in generally in emerging markets, political risk matters much more than in developed markets, because typically in emerging markets, the institutional strength is much weaker compared to uh, developed markets. And when the institutional strength is much weaker, change in leadership can have a big impact as far as policy is concerned. So that's how we typically view it uh, and change in le- uh, uh, between the two. But I also feel that the other thing that we do is that the, the longer a leader stays in power, the more we think are the diminishing returns to power. So that's how we look at political risk. That yes, politics matters a lot in emerging markets in particular because you can... Uh, get, like end up getting big swings in policy, which are not, you know, compared to the developed world, where there are many more checks and balances out there. So, for emerging market investing, I think it's a very important factor uh, as far as that's concerned. Regarding your question, sir, about that, that you know, what I find really sort of heartening is, is I agree that, that you know, that there's been a lot of talk of a, about an attack on the institutions and what's going on. But what I find very heartening through this entire experience is that the democratic impulse of the country is so deep that last year, four out of five governments lost the election, uh, including the ruling party. So I'd say that, you know, like at the center. So I'd say that for me, that still tells you that, yes, there may be a, a year ago, I think people were, a lot of the liberals were quite sort of, you know, uh, feeling quite despondent about what's going on. But today, given what's happened over the past year, the fact that we're about to have such a competitive election and that the, Demo- that the ruling party has suffered losses should tell you that the democratic impulses of this country are very deep and will possibly survive any sort of you know, attack on institutions in the short term because of the fact that despite all that, 
we are going to have such a competitive election and the ruling party sort of, you know, feels the heat. I think that's like tells you the fact that democracy is truly thriving in India. Um, regarding your question, Literacy which has to do with... Uh, sorry? Literacy. Literacy rates. It's very interesting that the state with possibly the highest emotional swings is Tamil Nadu. And that's what I document in the book as well. That in no other state do you have such cult worship of leaders, particularly if you're a film star, right? And you, and you have massive emotional swings in votes too. That in other states, as I said, typically about 2 or 3% vote swings is enough for you to win or lose an election. In Tamil Nadu, the vote swings tend to be 10-15%. Like so I don't think there's any great relationship in India between literacy rates and having and how you end up voting. Even though we want to believe, you know, like it's a very patronizing view. I, I hear very often, oh, the poor basically vote in a particular way, give them dole, etc. I don't think that it quite functions that way. I still feel it's very much along caste lines in many states. And the fact of the matter is that so the more urban India gets, the less the caste and the community fault lines are exposed. Uh, but I think that as far as uh, uh, literacy levels are concerned, it's, it, as I said, it's very difficult. Tamil Nadu is a classic case for you. With very high literacy rates, you end up getting very emotional voting in that state. Okay, I think there's time for one last quick. question. Quick question. Yeah. Okay. If you promise to be quick. <laughs> Uh, Richard, thank you for the wonderful talk. Uh, I have a very quick one. India is the fastest growing economy in the world today as we speak. Uh, and it's expected to overtake the United Kingdom probably this year or next year in terms of GDP. Uh, do you think it will be impacted by the elections? No. I think that electoral outcomes in India and you know, what happens to the country's growth trajectory have been very independent. You can, you know, as I said, that you know, some of the most significant reform is taking place under coalition governments, uh, as I've said. So I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, the only risk I find to the India story just now, if you ask me, is that if you could have, have this cycle of competitive populism which kicks in, uh, that, you know, like even with the Modi government, uh, uh, like the fact that the last few months we have again gone back to launching more welfare schemes one after another. And if this government's doing it, I fear that if you do end up getting a coalition government, maybe those pressures increase uh, out there. So for me, the biggest risk with the India story remains if you end up in the cycle of competitive populism. But that's a risk I would watch. But the trajectory, as I said, is still the fact that no matter which government comes and goes, a sort of 6 to 7% type of economic growth seems achievable given the low base that we still have and the fact that you still have enough states which are doing... Uh, enough to propel the overall country's growth rate. What we haven't talked about, of course, is the tax-to-GDP uh, ratio and, and India spending much less in, uh, of its, uh, and its tax base being much smaller than other countries, but that's another discussion. So the South Asia Centre has been doing a series of events leading up to elections 2019. Rich's book has come out at a, at a very opportune moment. So I think this is event number three. And we have a couple more. We have another book coming out next month, uh, a collection of essays taking stock of the current uh, national government uh, written by a bunch of uh, academics. Um, 
And so, and, and finally culminating on the day the election results come out this year, which we are estimating to be sometime in the middle of May, we are going to host in good LSE tradition of holding election events. Uh, this year we are going to diversify beyond Euro-America and do uh, a live elections result uh, event at, um, at LSE. All of you here are clearly interested in Indian democracy, Indian elections in India. Please come along, look out uh, for notices on the South Asia Centre website and the LSE events website. We'll advertise this, but it'll be a day-long affair because uh, we'll be here the entire time that uh, results are coming through. And many of the people who feature in Richard's book will be on big screens um, uh, analyzing results. It should be said that as an academic research center, as a bunch of academics and students, we tend to uh, read, write, discuss academic essays on Indian elections. The period that you cover is also when uh, a lot of new political surveys, the national election studies and other academic surveys, which then came into television studios, made elections uh, the excitement, the exciting phenomenon they are now. They are like cricket matches in India, and they, the way they are followed and, and discussed. Um, so it's very refreshing today to have a book that takes it all uh, out of that sort of hothouse of academic discussion and research into a much more on-the-ground feel of what uh, elections are like and the India that you see, uh, the marvelous carnival that elections make of India uh, during an election. So thank you, Richard, very much, and please join me in thanking you.